We're going to start with uh, a conversation with our special guest today, Jana Eggers, CEO of Narologics. Jana, welcome. It's great to have you here. Thank you. I'm honored to be asked. Jana, let's start by having you introduce uh, yourself and uh, Narologics to our audience. Of course. So my name is Jana Eggers, and I'm CEO of Narologics. I have uh, been in the startup scene since my, my first job out of research science. I was a computer scientist mathematician before, and my first job was at a startup. And we were a 20-person logistics optimization system. And I've just jumped mainly from startup to startup there. I've had a few stints at large companies based on acquisitions. Um, and I'm, so this is my sixth startup. Uh, and I, I love it. I love what you're doing because we all, entrepreneurs need help. Um, there's so many different challenges in a startup and, and what you're trying to accomplish that having this kind of network and uh, mentoring is really important. Um, to tell you a little bit about NARA, we are in the artificial intelligence space, which has its pluses and minuses, of course. The plus is it's definitely a hot field. The minus is it's definitely a hot field. Uh, <laughs> so so there's, a, there's a, a lot of hype and attention around it, um, which is sometimes good and sometimes bad. Um, what we do is particularly enable enterprises. So as enterprises are going through digital transformation, meaning Many enterprises are working to become technology companies themselves. Um, they don't necessarily have the data that some of the AI requires, um, the data capabilities of how do you get that data in line and ready for AI, or the mm -hmm. AI expertise. And so we offer a, um, a high-quality platform. It's been proven a, across many sectors to be able to uh, solve some of the challenges for AI, particularly we're looking at, we call it the which problem, um, which order is going to have a problem or which order should be accelerated or, uh, you know, a lot of people look at it as recommendations, which product should be recommended to someone. Um, we also work with the federal government, so in that case, uh, which information that's coming in should go to which analyst. Uh, so we solve in particular that problem that, um, it's an optimization and kind of prediction problem, and we make it easy for uh, enterprises to get engaged. So that's the, the quick when version. Did you, when did you start uh, Neurologics? So Nara was actually founded in 2011. Um, it had a different purpose. The idea there was more focused on re-indexing information for um, retrieval, and in particular it was um, they were thinking about being a new type of search engine. So you can see kind of where the overlap is on this which problem. Um, in 2014, well, 2013, they had some enterprises come to them and ask them about um, licensing the platform for some different uses than the consumer approach. And in 2014, the company decided to do that. They looked for uh, an executive that could do that kind of switch in, in company um, uh, capabilities to how do you change from being, you know, a platform that you operate yourself for consumers to something that actually large companies, uh, enterprises uh, um, can use and operate on their own. So 
um, we did a, a didn't kind of change the name of the company a bit and and built out the technology a bit more for that. So so you can either and this is not unusual. The reason why I'm telling you the story is this happens with startups on a on a fairly regular basis. Some people call it the pivot. Um, so you got involved when idea. when that pivot happened. Exactly, 2014, about three years ago. And um, was there revenue in the company at that point? The 2007 to 14 period, there was no revenue. It was just tinkering. 2011 to 2000. So the first three years, there wasn't um, really any revenue, and then we we changed that. It wasn't tinkering. It was more of a business model decision because a lot of um, consumer models aren't direct pay. Um, you know, they are advertising and partnership based. So that was the um, they had planned. They knew that they wouldn't have revenue um, or any substantial revenue for a while. So that was um, it was part of the plan to build up the consumer presence. Um, mm -hmm. And and so. Uh, but again, at that stage, I think the team realized there was more opportunity in the in the enterprise space, and so um, spent about a year switching over to that. Obviously, pursuing some of the leads that we had already, and and getting some of those into implementation, then building out the platform to support. And really, with the the platform that we chose in that direction, we got our first customer live um, in 2000 end of 2014 into 2015, and then we continued to uh, fortunately uh, go, go live with uh, people every year since. So what is the go-to-market strategy? Well, how do you um, package your technology to solve customer problems, and how do you sell? So uh, we are direct sales right now. Um, we're fortunate in that uh, because of some of the work that we've done, we've um, gotten on several lists of being, you know, high quality in AI, um, in particular for this. So we have a, a direct, you know, marketing and sales model, um, which is fine. Our platform is you know, the, the licensing model is fairly substantial um, and grows within the enterprise. Uh, as far as our um, our platform strategy, we have everything is uh, containerized and, and um, we use Docker for that. And so we can actually deploy, um, we do have our own hosting capabilities through AWS and GCP. Um, but we can also go into uh, other people's, their own uh, virtual private cloud, uh, whether they operate it or not, as long as they have a um, really a, you know, web-scaled type uh, infrastructure that they can do, it's, we don't really care. So um, 2014, that's like pretty early in the AI um you know, heat index, I guess is the way I would put it. it. In the last year or year and a half, it has really boomed, the whole AI hype. Um, but 2014, it wasn't the case. Uh, talk a little bit about what was it like to get into the market with an AI solution and uh, what kind of response were you getting? Uh, so I was actually really excited. I, I, I worked when I mentioned before as a research scientist. So I worked out at Los Alamos, and I used AI. I wasn't an AI researcher, but 
for I was doing computational chemistry work, and um, I was a theoretician doing some modeling, and I used um, artificial neural nets as well as um, genetic algorithms. And then when I switched into business after that, my, my first job out of research um, was with an expert system that logistics optimization company was uh, using expert systems, which is basically where you build the rules, you co code most of it in. And um, so I had a lot of experience and background, 30 years in, in, in AI and around AI, using AI as a tool. So, you know, to your point, when I entered this in 2014, I was like, wow, I think AI is going to take off. I didn't think it was going to go that quickly, <laughs> probably, probably because I saw how slowly it took us to get to this point. Um, and so I was more thinking, yes, we're early stage, but we're really well positioned with a very differentiated product. Because to me, when I saw the system, um, two, two things stood out. One is this which problem is, is very much like an expert system, and expert systems are really difficult to build and, and have a lot of maintenance. And the way we do it, um, we're letting data figure it out. So it's kind of like a neural net in that way. Um, but we're using some different proprietary algorithms. And so it's, it's more of a self-assembling um, uh, expert system based on data. The second thing is because of the way we do it, it's transparent, so it's not black box. And so I know how many problems people have tried to solve with expert systems, but then they get un un unmaintainable. And then on the second side, um, even when you have those, they really have to be um, transparent, that you have to know why the computer is giving you this answer. And so when I saw those two things, I felt like it was an opportunity in, in AI to really um, take off in a new way. I didn't quite expect the field to get so high. I thought that maybe five years coming, and it happened more about in one year. Um, so, so that's a little bit of the differences because of my heritage and background. I probably had a bit of a different perspective. Um, from from uh, folks in general. So I knew it was coming, just not quite as fast. You raised a rather large Series A. Could you take us through your early stage of business building and the corresponding financing strategy? Yeah, and much of that was raised, not all of it, but, but the, the vast majority of it was raised for this consumer play. And that's really not that unusual in the in the consumer space because a lot of it is, you know, you're not only investing in the technology, which is expensive to initially develop, but also the marketing to, to get out there. Um, what's nice about where we are today is we're not quite as capital intensive because we don't have to get out and compete in all the um, consumer uh, marketing challenges. Like I said, I don't, I don't even have a marketing person anymore. Um, we've, we've more invested in technology and grown on the technology side. Um, and, uh, you know, very fortunate that we don't need one, but again, I think that's because we came in early. Um, so most of the capital went to build the underlying technology and then also, you know, one fork of it for the, the marketing. Now we're in a, you know, obviously still using some of that investment, but also being funded by customers, which personally is a situation I'd like to be in. <laughs> I see. So you're saying that before you came, there was already money in the company that was raised for the consumer play, but since then you have not raised money. You're basically doing enterprise sales, and, and it's customers who are really helping you build the company, which is much healthier. 
we uh, we we've raised it, it's less than 25% since I've been here of of the full amount raised. So most of that was again to build the technology, which is not in, unsubstantial, and then also to do marketing, which we don't do anymore. So and yes, I and and we have some in reserve, of course. So we have it's a balance between you know slowing down how much that spend was happening and and then augmenting that with uh with customers like you said uh i i am with you that's a it's a much healthier approach because you really understand your value and where you're providing value and that, that's a big communication from customers what um, what is the business model how do you charge customers so we're a little bit old school in that, in that uh, we just charge an annual license fee. So it is, uh, you know, a recurring revenue. Um, but right now, in particular, um, because of the size of the implementations, we're not really doing anything month to month. I think we'll get there. Um, one of the things that I do want to build out is our ability to do self-serve so that people can come and sign up and build prototypes. Um, for a, a smaller amount of money, but these, uh, the instances that we're doing are large enough now. Um, one of our customers, for example, um, has uh, tens of millions of customers that are accessing the solution. Um, that's a on the consumer side. You know, we have some others that are um, much more on the information processing side that has, you know, Tens of thousands of documents coming in a day, and and but they but their user set is only a few hundred. So um, so most of our our sales are more um, you know it's hundreds of thousands of dollars for a year, um, which doesn't really make sense on the monthly side. The, these people aren't committing to systems that are something that hey well I'm going to see how it works out. That said, we want to get to where you can do prototypes and, you know, sign up for three months or, um, you know, maybe again even month to month, try and build something like that, make sure that it works and then deploy. But most of our customers, they've already decided what they're going to do. They're committing to something like this and, and we're an enabler to get there faster. And how much professional services do you have to do to um, make these customer instances work? It's a great question because it is a big challenge in the AI industry in particular. Um, most of the professional services uh, that we see and also that I just hear in the industry, I was out at the O'Reilly AI conference um, last week talking to people about this. So much of the professional services are um, really spent around the data and getting the data prepped and ready, transformed is what we call it. Um, to get to go into the um, into the AI system, and I, you know, you hear anywhere from uh, you know two thirds to seventy five percent. Sometimes I think it's even more than that. Um, our system really does that in an automated fashion. It's one of the unique properties that we have. Is um, we we call it we build the data connectome, and we use the connectome term because it's a term from neuroscience where we got our roots. And it's basically the, your connectome is how your um, your neurons connect, and so it, they they called it that, comparing it to the genome, which is the genome is your um, nature, the connectome is your nurture, and that's our point is we're learning from the data that you have in your company, 
um, and, and building the system based on that. And because of that, we actually don't have a lot of um, professional services. I actually, no one on our team is, uh, has a title of uh, services consultant or anything like that. Our product managers and our engineers absolutely help our customers get going, but mm -hmm. our proud moments and our moments of achievement are when they can do it themselves. So we really, mm -hmm. you know, as I mentioned with this self-serve model, and we have customers that have done that, which is exciting. They, um, you know, we're, we're excited to see they'll launch in a new region. You know, as I mentioned, a customer before, they're worldwide with us. Um, they launch in a new region without us even knowing. And so mm -hmm. it's exciting to see that, that that theory is working out in play. That said, when we get started, you know, there is a fair amount of time teaching them the system. And I, we, we definitely need to get better at that. If you look across your different customers, is there a use case or two that is dominant that people are buying your product for? Um, yeah, I, I see there's two main ones. The first one is what people traditionally think of as a recommendation engine. Um, so it's, it's particularly personalized. So for this customer, what should I put in front of them? And that can be a product, it can be media, it can be content. It can be an offer, but it's really the same thing. Um, I think the challenge is when you expand to something like um, content that you have or, um, or uh, even marketing campaigns, that doesn't go really well with the current um, collaborative filtering approach that you have when you have lots of products and lots of sales um, because you don't have uh, – so one example is one of our customers, an airline customer, um, they wanted to figure out which uh, credit card offer to offer to which customer because they have lots of different credit card um, uh, um, offerings. And so the question there is you don't have the data that you would have in a collaborative filtering type situation because you need masses of if they did this, they would do this. And we work well in that environment. So it's kind of, you know, think of it as a recommendation engine, but very much expanded and able to work in, in different cases. So that's, that's one, the personalized offering space, if you will. And then the other side is really decision support. So another customer, medical products company, uh, and they have, um, because they work with insurance companies, they can have various things go wrong with an order. Um, and they need to make sure that they're going to get remittance from the insurance company and lots of qualification there. Well, right now they have a rules-based system, as I mentioned, kind of an expert system that they've developed in their system, but it's really hard to maintain, and it covers all the low-hanging fruit, and it actually does that well in our testing because we compared our system to that one. Um, but what it doesn't get is when you have 17 things, different things that go wrong with an order versus the top five things. And so that's what we're doing for them is, um, you know, we're finding those orders that something's going to go wrong with, again, the which orders problem, um, mm -hmm. that they normally would have built out an expert system for, but they just can't build one out that's as encompassing as what we do. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's I, I'd say on the back end side, it's traditionally what was called decision support, and then on the front end, it's really personalization. So those are the two groupings with a little bit of, you know, shaking out some of the baggage that comes with each of those. Mm -hmm. 
What is your game plan? Do you continue to grow organically with customer revenue at this point, or are you looking to raise funding and accelerate? What's, uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, it's a great question, and it's one that, honestly, we talk about almost every week. Uh, as we get more customers in, it's like, well, gosh, should we, are we waiting too long? Are we being too conservative? You know, can someone else come in? And, and it's not an easy, it's not an easy decision. Um, we are talking with some investors now, um, and we're open to investment, but it's got to be the right investment for us. And, you know, because, and you, you brought it up, because we have a, a fair amount of money in, that's a bit of an overhang. And um, so, you know, how much equity do we give up to get more money in, you know, relative mm -hmm. to that and what's happened versus how much we can do ourselves with the, you know, customer financing, if you will, <laughs> in the sense that they're You had, what, about $20 million in in the first series A before? The enterprise 15. strategy kicked in here, 15? Not, not 2015, yeah. 15. Fair amount of money. It, it is, but, you know, you look at uh, Palantir, before they took off, took in 50 million, right? So for a pretty complex system like ours, um, that's not an unusual number. I think the... I think the challenge is not all of that went into um, this business that we're currently yeah. in, and that that's where the that's more where the balance is. Pivots are always expensive, equity-wise. You know, as we've done case study after case study of pivots, where you know you take a round of financing, a sizable round of financing, and that strategy doesn't work out. You have to reset and start over on a different strategy. In the meantime, your equity has gotten diluted substantially on that first strategy. This is a very common uh, issue that you will have to navigate through. Switching gears, um, what is your experience as a, a female CEO of a technology startup? <laughs> so uh, this is kind of the two and a half times that I've done this, the second and a half, if you will. Um, so I also, as a CEO of an of a Excel Ventures-backed uh, company called Spreadshirt um, for uh, four years, 2006 to 2010. And then before that, I was um, the general manager of a, of a startup within a big company. Um, and so had the, you know, CEO-like role there managing the P&L and all of the resources. Um, you know, I, I think it's hard for, it's somewhat hard for me in that I've always been in science and technology um, in the sense that, you know, my career, I started out as a research scientist and I was out at Los Alamos and I did NSF uh, research, National Science Foundation research before that. Um, and I was typically the only woman in the room. So in some senses, I think that helped me because um, I kind of grew up with it and I didn't notice some things. It's definitely different in the business world. Um, scientists are, you know, not immune, but it's uh, maybe a little bit more collaborative um, in approach. And I, I think that we often get in a more competitive uh, business situation um, just by nature. And, and I think that, 
you know, women tend to be more collaborative. So it's been um, uh, interesting dealing with some of that. You know, I, I've certainly had, uh, I, I won a pitch contest, for example, once, and um, I've had the sexist comments where, you know, someone said afterwards, well, you know why you won it because the way you look. What was the coach, Cindy? And, Uh, sorry, Jenna, somebody interrupted. Maureen is going to mute him. Go ahead. Keep going, please. No, no worries. So, you know, there's some of that, um, some of that happens, which is very unfortunate. Um, so I think we just have, you know, across the genders, we have different approaches to things. And I, I wish they were respected and, and celebrated a bit more on, on each side. Um, it hasn't been, uh, I, I can't say that it's always been delightful or that it's, uh, it's definitely not been an advantage to be female, but we all have think, our disadvantages. Um, there is bias against uh, women entrepreneurs? Yes. Elaborate. Uh, I mean, I think it's pretty much been uh, shown in many cases. Uh, there was a fairly recent study. Just a second, Janet. Maureen, people are coming on and disrupting the call nonstop. Can you please mute people? Ankit Raj is now disrupting the call. Go ahead. Sorry, Jenna. Sure. No worries. So I think that, um, uh, you know, there's been several studies. One is in, uh, it was recent one was out of Sweden, which is a very gender neutral society overall. I have mean, spent a fair amount of time over there. And I was even shocked to see that um, in their VC, this is their government VC, the differences in questions that are asked and the comments that were made. Um, and I do think that's the norm. I mean, I, I know I have seen many of the male pitches and female pitches, uh, you know, at, at different VCs and around. And I, I am surprised at feedback and questions that I hear um, females ask versus the males. And it seems that, um, you know, there's a fair number of VCs that don't even realize. Uh, I was speaking with someone last night, and he actually, he was surprised. I'm, I'm at a conference right now, and um, uh, he was surprised to hear some comments from a couple of women that were uh, um, at the table saying, well, you did notice that uh, this person on the stage said, well, I know, you know, a person who's just a mom and she was, she turned out to be a great entrepreneur. <laughs> we were kind of like, how do you even say just a mom? Uh, and then, you know, say, and she did it. Why can't you? Um, you know, it really was toned up. And he said, you know what? I didn't even notice when that was said. And he said, I'm really mm -hmm. glad that you guys called that out the table. So I become more aware. And I think most people, you know, again, we don't, we don't um, kind of notice when some of those things are said. Like I said, I know that I've been 
I remember the time when I won the pitch contest and it was because of the way I looked and that, that hurt. Honestly, I went and threw the ward away that night because I was like, fuck you. I don't want any, sorry. <laughs> I don't want anyone thinking that I, I'm not going to go brag about this because I've now had someone dirty that for me. Right. And, and um, so I was like, I'm not going to go talk about this. And, and I didn't kind of really even, think about that honestly um, much that after that until someone asked me about you know when were times I'd been discriminated against and I sat down and I actually wrote a list and that was one that came up and I thought why did I do that I mean it was a long time ago <laughs> but I wouldn't do it now I'd be like yeah <laughs> I won that pitch contest yeah because I'd realize I think then I was more insecure um, and I thought oh my gosh, what if it was because of how I looked and not how I did? And I think now I have a lot more confidence <laughs> to say this. That doesn't mean I'm not impacted by bias. It doesn't mean that, you know, someone's not taking me as seriously as they take, uh, you know, a male entrepreneur. Do you see bias in your customers? No, um, I don't really. I, I, from our customers, I have to say, I see a lot more support. Um, mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I think there's some cultural differences because we do work with, um, we do have global customers, and I see some of that. But overall, I, I, I'm really proud of the customers we're working with, and I have found them to be much more, you know, it. it, it it makes us feel great to work with you and they want to promote it more and they want to grow it more within the company and they have me come and talk to their executives. And so, I mean, part of that may be that in, uh, enlightenment on the big companies' perspectives, but I really don't see it um, from customers at all. So I've had uh, this conversation about bias and so forth with many female entrepreneurs and you know, my conclusion, and, and I would say my advice to the younger women who are doing this is that focus on the customers, get validation, get traction, and if you are going into investor meetings with customers, they don't mess with you. Yeah. If you don't I, I think go in with the goods, that's when people start messing with you. I think so. I think, you know, where, and I, I absolutely agree with that, and, and that's, that's why we're having some very productive conversations with investors now because of our customer traction. I think it still does, even in the conversations that I have because I, you know, sit there and look at some of the funding that's happening, you know, there's still a question of how do you scale, and so many VCs, understandably, are focused on um, the big wins and how they mm -hmm. scale faster. And so you still have some of it there of, you know, yeah, I've proven that I can get these big customers and get them to sign up for large contracts and get them into production, which, by the way, a lot of AI is not in production now. <laughs> okay. uh, I, I think those are all big steps, and it's absolutely why we can have some serious conversations. That said, again, I, I think you, you still enter it in, into some of that bias of, you know, 
can she lead for scale? Will she be, you know, again, because women will, will tend to be more um, cooperative, I think they, they don't consider women aggressive enough on the scale side, um, which I don't think is fair. I mean, to me, it's like, I don't really even care. I know there are studies out there that say this and that. It's so much in the, in, in, there's so much of a spread there but those answers are so much in the spread um, that it's silly to even say, I mean, who gives a crap if women may be a little bit, you know, less aggressive on this, that doesn't mean that every woman is. And so you find the right, the right people and there's plenty of men that are less aggressive than me. I mean, I have. But a, I think the question I a, um, of can this entrepreneur or can this early stage CEO scale to the later stage uh, level of scaling is, is asked of men as well. You know, I've, I've spent a lot of time in the venture capital world, so that this is not a question that is only asked of women. It's a question that VCs ask of all founders. So I'm just, you know, pushing back a little bit because, you know, you can take it as discrimination or you can just take it as that VCs are doing their job of evaluating whether this entrepreneur or this early stage CEO is going to scale to the next stage or not. Oh, I'm not offended by the questions. It's how the questions are asked and who they, mm -hmm. whose answers they believe more. So if I give the same answer as a male, is the males going to be believed more because they have biases that women are not as aggressive as men, just as one example. So mm -hmm. I, I'm not judging whether or not they should be asking that question. My only point was, um, you know, to your point about the customer, it's not always just that you have traction with the customer. It's mm -hmm. do you have um, the traction that shows that you can scale. And so it's mm -hmm. not just at one stage, it's at multiple stages sure. that that bias sure. can come sure. up. Fair enough. Fair enough.